Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Our focus this week is on the two big stories dominating international headlines. Later, I'll be talking to Suzanne Lynch in Washington about the impeachment crisis that's threatening to derail the presidency of Donald Trump. But first this week, it's Brexit and specifically the EU perspective on the latest developments. And I'm joined now from Brussels by our Europe editor, Patrick Smith. Paddy, is Boris Johnson's Brexit master plan, which he delivered to the EU last Wednesday, already dead in the water? Pretty much so. I think I think there's a general feeling here that we're really just going through the motions, that that, that uh, Johnson has to prove uh, to his constituency back at home that he's trying to get a deal, but that he knows perfectly well that what he has proposed will, will not run uh, for two very important uh, reasons. Uh, both of them red lines as far as the European Union is concerned. One is to do with the customs union. The other is to do with the so-called storm and lock or veto uh, being imposed by the he that he wants to impose on on the deal, um, uh, and and which undermines the idea that there would be a rock solid permanent guarantee that Ireland would not end up uh, with with a hard border. And I suppose, Paddy, to, to take these two aspects separately, the the. Um it was seen as a concession, I think, uh, on Boris Johnson's part that Northern Ireland would remain in the single market for goods. But with that proviso, as you just mentioned, the Northern Ireland Assembly could decide at any time or at four-year intervals to withdraw from that arrangement. Now, the, the British government argument or the Johnson argument is that it's more democratic to give Northern Ireland people or its assembly a say in their own arrangements. Well, uh, firstly, that's a bit rich because this is the government which uh, told them that Northern Ireland was not going to have a say about whether they left uh, the European Union or not. And the people of Northern Ireland voted by a majority uh, that that they didn't want to leave. So it's a bit rich now coming back and saying, but we think that the most important thing is a democratic mandate from the Northern Ireland people. And secondly, it, it undermines the position uh, that the Irish government has always held and that the European Union has held, that they want a guarantee that isn't conditional, that isn't dependent on somebody else, uh, that Ireland will will retain a soft border. Uh, and, and so anything, you know, an insurance policy that basically has a get-out clause uh, is not an insurance policy. And that's the... Uh, uh, the problem with that. So it's actually a very major thing. It's not really about democracy. And the truth is that if Britain wants to uh, break at some stage with the arrangements that it makes with uh, Europe uh, on the, the, the on, a, on a backstop or an alternative to a backstop, it will always be able to do so if its population decides. But there will be a price. And the price will be that uh, a hard border will be imposed in Ireland. And all, the, all of the stuff that Britain has committed to in the uh, Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, will, will be put in jeopardy. So it's not that uh, you, you're denying the people of Northern Ireland and indeed the people of Britain a say on the future. You're saying uh, if you do have a say in the future, it will have very dramatic consequences. And and uh, we, we're sure you don't want to do that. And what about the second major aspect, if you like, Paddy, of the these new proposals, which is that Northern Ireland would exit the the EU customs union. What in particular, again, is objection, objectionable about that from the EU side? Well, there's two elements to this. Uh, one is to do with the commitment 
that the British have have given at the beginning that May gave uh, that that the, they would do a deal which would preserve the All Ireland economy uh, and not do damage to the All Ireland economy and and clearly customs checks which would break up the flow of trade north and south which would probably involve uh, tariffs north north and south would damage the north the All Ireland economy. But secondly, and this is this is very important because uh, I, I met a, a very senior uh, um, European ambassador the other day, who said to, to me that look, uh, we're actually not talking about uh, the customs uh, proposals. We're not really talking about Ireland. We're talking about the whole of the European Union and protecting the single market. The proposals that they've made uh, for customs posts remote from the border, uh, for checks that could be run out of Dublin or, or Galway even, uh, um, simply wouldn't work, simply wouldn't protect the single market. There's no way of ensuring that people don't drive down uh, from the north in, in, in convoys across an open border and distribute uh, goods into the single market. And that's something the European Union members will not accept. Um, the, the legal text, Paddy, supporting these proposals that the, the UK supplied to the EU, these haven't been published yet. Could there be anything in there that um, maybe gives comfort or kind of answers some of those issues that, are, that have been raised? Well, I think it's extremely unlikely because it certainly would be in the British interest to make that clear as soon as possible. Um, they are talking of publishing the, the legal text and, and uh, one of the... Um, uh, again, uh, diplomats have been saying here that it's 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 actually quite irritating to them that they're not getting copies of the legal text, that it's being restricted to the task force. Uh, and the European Commission says, look, you know, it's not our document to give out. Uh, we think it would be useful if the British distributed it. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see it in the next day. Paddy, as we know, uh, Boris Johnson is bound by law as a result of an act passed by the UK Parliament last month. It's, it's known informally by its supporters as the Benn Act, after Hilary Benn, the, the Labour MP who presented it. Johnson, of course, calls it the Surrender Act. He is bound under this act to seek an extension to Brexit if uh, an agreement has not been reached, or the UK has not reached a deal by October 19th. Is there a danger here, Paddy, of complacency on the part of the EU that if it thinks Boris Johnson is simply unable to deliver a no-deal Brexit, that they might not see the need actually to negotiate with him and to, and to, and to do a deal? I think the problem here is that the, the EU has been saying they can't really start proper negotiations until Boris Johnson uh, changes his package of, of, of proposals. So uh, it's not that they're in the negotiations and, and, and playing tough. Uh, they haven't got to that, that particular point. And I think the other thing is that, uh, that people are beginning to think about, well, what happens after uh, Boris Johnson applies for this uh, extension? Uh, we, we end up in a situation where there's a general election. Uh, the likelihood is, at the moment, it appears that the Conservatives might win uh, that general election. And we're back exactly where we are now, uh, with no prospect of, of, a, of a real deal. So I, I'm not sure that the, the European leaders are, are particularly relishing the prospect of giving an, an extension. I think they feel that they have to do so. Uh, but it, it isn't necessarily getting us off the hook, getting us out of the mess that we're in. There has been some speculation, of course, that Johnson could seek an extension as required under the Ban Act, but then do a side deal with some EU member state and get that state to veto the request. Is there any member state, Paddy, that would be likely to break ranks in that fashion? Uh, 
Um, I think this is this is part of the febrile imaginations of the of the British uh, media who are looking for all sorts of of ways around this. The only state that might conceivably assist him in this regard is Hungary, and it's the Hungarians have made very clear that they have no intention of doing so. Uh, Viktor Orban, who is at war with the Commission and the European Union over a lot of issues, knows that he's not going to burn all his political capital uh, by by seriously antagonising the fellow his fellow member states, and and so that there isn't really any any likely prospect of this. Um, it, it's it's great fun. There's all sorts of other uh, conspiracy theories and 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 theories that are. Uh, circulating about how he's going to get around the the, the problem he's in. Uh, I frankly don't think he's going to bother. I, I think that he is going to um, go to the country saying, I've been forced against my will. Uh, I was trying to get Brexit for you. You can't trust anybody except me. And, and that way he would manage to hoover up an awful lot of the Brexit party votes, which is what he really needs at the moment. Indeed, Paddy, the unity of the EU27 has been a remarkable feature, I think, of the entire Brexit process. And I think it has confounded Brexiteers in the UK who expected divisions to emerge at some stage. What binds the EU member states on this, Paddy, given that there must be differing interests at play here? Yes, there are some differences of interest. But I've been struck by the fact that over the last few months, when I've asked senior EU politicians about this, uh, they look at me and they they shrug their shoulders and they say they say it's very very simple. He said it's not necessarily just about Ireland and the peace peace process, which you know the European Union has invested a lot in and and, and certainly identifies with. Um, it's the fact simply Ireland is a member. And one of them said to me only the other day, look, there is no point in in a union unless we stand by our members, and we are determined that we will stand by Ireland in a difficult period. And the, the reality is that a lot of smaller member states are watching this with considerable interest because they can see themselves in, in a difficult position at some stage in the future and they would like similar solidarity. That's it's, it's a question of mutual interest. So Ireland really does hold the key, does it? I mean, if Leo Varadkar were to signal to Brussels that Ireland was prepared to soften its position on the backstop, would that be a game changer? Well, I would put it very bluntly and say if, if, if Varadkar had a political death wish and went to Brussels and said that, uh, uh, then I think, I think you would see some movement. The, there are problems with the customs union that I was talking about that are not really specifically to do with Ireland. And I think that, that uh, there would have to be some way around the problem of, of the openness of the, of the single market. Um, it's not just a question of of economic uh, issues like you know lorries crossing with with goods that need to be uh, need to be taxed. It's to do with health and safety of animals, for example. And people have memories of the BSE uh, scandal uh, and the BSE scare when when uh, you know one stray cow wandering around Donegal. Uh, that has come over the border from from Northern Ireland could actually close down not only the Irish beef industry but the European beef industry because uh, such is the reaction of people to uh, scares of that kind. 
I, I did think it was interesting, Paddy, on the question of pressure on Ireland or otherwise, when I was watching the, the live feed of the press conference that Faradkar did with the Danish Prime Minister the other day, and several of the Danish journalists, their questions were kind of uh, along the lines of, um, to, to Varadkar, do you not think you should compromise? And they asked their own Prime Minister, did you put pr- any pressure on him to compromise, given that we're all going to suffer if there's a no deal? Do you get that sense, even from talking to colleagues from other, other countries, um, that that kind of attitude might might be there in some respects anyway? No. <laughs> Next question. Um, so, Paddy, if there, if there is an extension, then granted, just on the question of the extension, despite reluctance you mentioned, do you think that if, if it's requested that they will feel there is no um, alternative really but to grant it? Uh, I think that's pretty clear. I think I think that um, the only thing that they will actually say is, look, it must be for a particular purpose. Uh, and that purpose, we all know, is, is a general election. And they, I know uh, Labour is having qualms at the moment in, in Britain about an election, but I don't think there's any way of stopping an election once the extension has been granted. And the leaders will want... Um, to be sure that it's not just uh, Boris Johnson coming to them and saying, "Look, listen, lads, I need a little more time to negotiate this." Uh, it will be uh, Boris Johnson coming to them and say, "I need, I need the time to run an election," and and uh, I think that's pretty definite. Presumably, the, the the real thing, the one thing that everybody would want to see if there is an election, would be a decisive result, even if it's a, a strong conservative majority behind Boris Johnson, but at least a government with a parliament behind it that's capable of, that goes to Brussels with a proper mandate. Is is that an outcome? Do you think that people would want to see? I think we're in the lap of the gods there. The British electoral system is so bizarre that that the election at this stage could produce almost any result. Um, I, I I think the the reality is here that people are saying, look, if if a Tory government is elected with a, a majority or near majority, then then we're into back into no deal territory. If another form of government is elected with Labour and uh, Liberal Democrats, uh, Democrats perhaps uh, in, in in coalition, then there is a possibility of of uh, a, a deal uh, based on the withdrawal agreement or something something close to it. Those are the two scenarios that that uh, people are talking about. But uh, the 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 prospect of a strong Tory government coming back and saying now we can, we can do a do, deal is not is not really. Um, uh, seen as likely. But I, I suppose what I'm driving at, Paddy, is it w- would it be seen as a more palatable option um, that, n- notwithstanding that, you know, most EU member states, maybe all of them, would prefer to see Britain remain in the EU, would that be a more palatable option that as a strong Tory majority um, coming back to deliver a no deal, it would be better, wouldn't it, than the continuing stalemate that we've seen for the past three years and more? Uh, I think I think it's people aren't looking at it like that. What they're looking at the the question of of the extension is the last last chance they have of getting either a deal or a remain solution. Uh, they're not sure that they'll get that, uh, and they're in fact probably more likely to end up in back in the no deal scenario. So it's really the whole idea of the extension is being looked at in a slightly different way. So to come back then, Paddy, to, to the here and now, if you like, what does Boris Johnson, if he is serious about getting a deal, what does he need to do now to um, not only to, to try to bring about a deal, but to get serious negotiations underway? He has to talk seriously about uh, a Northern Ireland remaining within within the customs union. And, and that will cause him enormous problems with the DUP and with sections of his own party. 
Uh, and he has to talk seriously about changing his Stormont lock. Now, I think that's the one on which it is actually easiest for him to move, because there are all sorts of ways that the EU would be quite happy with of providing a consultative process uh, around regulatory, regulatory changes. Uh, and and, and, and that, is, uh, that is actually feasible. Uh, we ha we have a situation where Norway and and Switzerland, for example, have uh, built into their agreements with the EU process by which they are consulted at every stage uh, of a legislative uh, process ahead of regulatory changes, and that's um, that's quite feasible to do that with Northern Ireland. But what isn't feasible is to do a deal in which the customs uh, union uh, is not uh, dealt with, in which Northern Ireland remains outside the customs union. And how much time do we have now, Paddy? There's an EU uh, leaders' summit uh, scheduled for next week. Um, Emmanuel Macron has talked about, uh, told Boris Johnson at the weekend, he needs to uh, come up with a solution by the end of this week. So just what kind of timetable are we looking at? Yeah, I mean, the Commission is saying in, informally, look, we're not setting a deadline, but, it, but a, a summit has to be prepared. And that means that the... Uh, British will have to be uh, in a position to say, look, there is the bones of a deal here by Friday because any form of agreement will have to go back to the capitals. It'll have to be translated. It'll have to be le examined legally. It'll have to go back to a ministerial uh, meeting called the GAC Article 50 meeting in Luxembourg on, on Tuesday where the agenda of the summit uh, is, is discussed. And they're making it absolutely clear that the, the summit itself will not negotiate. The summit will discuss high politics, the principles involved, and will make a decision. Uh, so a decision, uh, a deal, if there is one, will have to be done before this weekend uh, by Friday afternoon. As one uh, commission official said to me jokingly, five past five. <laughs> so give us your prediction, Paddy. How's all this going to play out over the next days and weeks? I think I, I think a deal is impossible. Uh, I think we are into a summit which will not be discussing, therefore, a, a, a deal and may not discuss an extension. I don't know when uh, the, the British will apply for an extension. It's possible that they leave it until after the summit, until the, their own deadline, which is the 19th, <clears throat> in which case we may be talking about another uh, emergency summit later uh, at the the later in that week or the the, the following week, um, and we're but we're not talking. I think we're almost certainly now talking about an extension. How we get that extension uh, is is still at issue and will be interesting to see played out. Uh, but uh, an extension and and a general election. Never amount to shirk a prediction, Paddy. Thanks for for that analysis. We'll talk again soon. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself. The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. 
Thanks again to Patrick Smith in Brussels. It's to Washington now for the latest on that other story that's dominating world headlines, and that's the threat of impeachment hanging over the US President Donald Trump. Our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, is on the line. Uh, Suzanne, if there's one thing we can deduce from Donald Trump's statements and actions over recent days, it's probably this. He's very exercised and indeed worried about this impeachment threat, isn't he? Yes, um, there's been a huge amount of activity on Donald Trump's Twitter site, even more so than usual. He's been tweeting, retweeting relentlessly uh, about this uh, impeachment inquiry that was launched a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, there's two ways of looking at this. One could be that he's um, that it, it's it's telling us how uh, how fearful he really is behind the scenes of what's happening now. There have been reports that he himself is very, very concerned that no matter how this pans out, and even if he was not convicted, if this goes to trial in the Senate, um, you know, being impeached would be a huge blot on the copybook of any president. So in one sense, it could indicate that underlying anxiety. But on the other side, it's more, it could be just simply Donald Trump's defiance. He has remained defiant uh, in public, at least, since this controversy started. And this is what's so difficult or challenging in a way for Democrats, that Donald Trump is essentially owning this. He's admitting to what he's done. He published the disputed phone call of July 25th, or at least an edited version of that between himself and the Ukrainian uh, president. And he's more or less saying to Democrats, this is what I've done, you know, and daring them, I suppose, uh, to say, well, what are you going to do next? He believes that uh, he has got the support of his supporters, his base. Uh, and I mean, I think this is going to be crucial. He believes that having the base will be enough for him to win in 2020. Others say that he really would have to win over some more independent voters if he's going to get that over the line again uh, four years after he rose to power in 2016. Um, but look, publicly, as I say, yes, he's defiant uh, and he's, in a sense, daring Democrats to take him on on this issue. Now, at the heart of the story, Suzanne, is that phone call you mentioned there between Trump and the, the Ukrainian president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, last July, in which he asked for a favour, namely that Ukraine investigate his political rival, Joe Biden, and, and the business dealings mm. of, of Biden's son, Hunter. Now, that request, we talked about it on the podcast last week. It came to mm. light as a result of a, a whistleblower's disclosure. Now, over the weekend, uh, it emerged that a second whistleblower had come forward with information yeah. about Trump's dealings with Ukraine. How significant do you think that development is likely to prove to be? Yeah, I think it potentially is very significant. Uh, all we know, the legal team representing the first whistleblower has now confirmed, firstly, that they are representing multiple individuals in connection with uh, the first whistleblower's complaint. Now, we don't know if that's just one other whistleblower, a second whistleblower or more. We do know that a second whistleblower has uh, emerged and significantly has approached and spoken to the Inspector General of the Intelligence Services. That's the person who received the initial whistleblower complaint. He has now spoken to a second whistleblower. Now, it's unclear whether this is a whole new um, body of evidence or was this conversation in connection with the first whistleblower's report? Because what we do know is that the original whistleblower did not witness the phone call directly. Um, in that, in the whistleblower's complaint that was published, we see that uh, he or she was saying that they had heard from multiple officials about his concerns over the phone call. Um, so the question now is, is this second whistleblower somebody who was directly on the phone call? It's kind of suggesting at the moment it probably is. They talk about first-hand knowledge. So uh, this, again, will heap pressure on Donald Trump because it'll be, it'll help to build a case, essentially, um, for uh, those who are trying to hold Donald Trump into account, to account uh, for this incident.
Because Trump, of course, continues to make much of the fact that the first whistleblower only had secondhand information. Although that's kind of odd, isn't it, that he's making that defence because the, the transcript or a rough transcript of the call has been published. So yes, <laughs> we've yes. seen the details. Yes, exactly. And this is what I was saying at the beginning. He is remarkably kind of owning this. One could say that, uh, you know, in Richard Nixon's time, there was a smoking gun at the end of the process, whereas now in many ways we have the smoking gun at the beginning of the process. We have the transcript of the call or or most of the call, as we as we assume. Um, but yes, the the attacks on the whistleblower is one of the strategies that Trump and some of his allies are using. And as you just pointed out there, it seems peculiar that they're doing so. Um, because even some Republicans who have been loath to criticise Donald Trump have stepped in, um, you know, tentatively, but they have stepped in and suggested, you know, the whistleblower should be protected, that it's down in law and, and, and the US system needs uh, to protect whistleblowers who do want to go to Congress, etc., with information. Um, but the, I think the, the role here, the, one of the problems is, as well as the phone call itself, a secondary uh, theme of this is, the alleged cover-up that happened by senior officials in the White House when the phone call took place. And this was in the original whistleblower's complaint. Uh, so if the second whistleblower also confirms that there was an effort by White House officials to conceal evidence of that call, and there are now rumours and suggestions there could be other things that were put on the separate server to conceal them, uh, well, that could be seriously uh, a problem for Donald Trump. Uh, so I think this is a kind of a new front in this. And it undermined that argument that this was kind of a, a politically motivated whistleblower. One point also to notice um, that was seized on by Trump on Friday and his allies was that Adam Schiff, the head of the Intelligence Committee, who's become uh, Trump's uh, major rival in this whole uh, impeachment inquiry, because he's essentially leading it on the House side. Um, he came under a lot of criticism because it emerged uh, that the whistleblower, the original whistleblower, originally did approach his committee and his aides about uh, his complaint. And Adam Schiff had said publicly when he had asked that he'd met the whistleblower before, he said, no, he hadn't. He had to come out and clarify this, saying, well, he was just kind of contacting us. He didn't give us a complaint. He was talking to one of my aides. But this has really been seized upon by Republicans. Uh, and some people, a lot of people are saying it was a misjudgment on Adam Schiff's part not to disclose that they did have contact with the whistleblower, because obviously this is adding to the Donald Trump narrative, which is, this is all a kind of deep state conspiracy, democratically leaned, uh, leaning people are, um, you know, clubbing together to get at me. So I think this was kind of, um, you know, a negative story for Democrats that emerged over the whistleblower over the last few days. Now, an another big development, Suzanne, since we sp spoke last week was the release of text messages between uh, various US officials working on the on White House-Ukraine relations, the ambassador to Ukraine, ambassador to the EU and, and, and others. They, they painted a pretty damning picture, didn't they? They did. Uh, these text messages were released last Friday to the House committees by Kurt uh, Volker. He is the former special envoy to Ukraine who resigned in the last couple of weeks. Uh, he spoke to lawmakers for almost 10 hours last Friday behind closed doors, and he released, I think, more than 60 text messages. They are from over a period of about three months uh, around the time where this disputed phone call, the July 25th phone call, took place. And they are pretty, they're pretty damning against not just the effort by Trump and Giuliani to secure uh, negative information about Joe Biden, who's running for, for president on the Democratic side, but also about uh, the efforts by officials, including Mr. Volker himself, uh, to, to encourage, we'd say, uh, the Ukrainian government to look into these uh, allegations of corruption against Biden. Um, for example, 
um, the one of the, the the biggest issues is that uh, one text uh, Mr. Volker sent, uh, he said, he, he talked, just to kind of quote from it, he said, assuming President Zelensky convinces Trump he will investigate or get to the bottom of what happened, we will nail down a date for a visit to Washington. So this was sent by Mr. Volker to the advisor to the Ukrainian president. And it's it's specifically saying if we get, you know, your president to get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, uh, that's the election. We will nail down. We will we will give you we will organize a visit to Washington. Um, and we see in another text, the U.S. Charity Affairs in Kiev, uh, you know, re- raised concerns and says it would be crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. So there's kind of admissions. We also see, interestingly, a figure who's going to emerge now in the next few days, the uh, ambassador, America's ambassador to, to the EU. Um, he he is uh, in these text messages, but at one point he tries to shut down the conversation and says, uh, you know, call me. And he says at another point to Mr. Volker, I don't think we should continue this conversation on text anymore. And says, I think you're incorrect about President Trump's intentions. There's no quid pro quo. So this person, Gordon Sondland, who's the ambassador uh, in Brussels, he has been very involved with the Ukraine issue and remarkably so in a sense because Ukraine is not part of the EU. He's supposed to be ambassador to the European Union in Brussels, not to, to Kiev. Um, but he seems to be a central figure in this and he is one of the figures who was subpoenaed by the House and he's expected to attend and to speak to lawmakers early this week. Now, it remains to be seen whether he will be as forthcoming as uh, Mr. Volker, uh, whether he will produce documents, whether he will produce text messages, but he is scheduled to testify as early as Tuesday here in Washington. And I, I suppose the, the point about those texts, Anne, is that they, they undermine Trump's case, don't they, or his um, insistence that there was no quid pro quo. Um, you, you mentioned there that um, Gordon Sondland said in, in a text there was no quid pro quo, but if, if a visit to the White House was being dangled in front of the Ukrainian president in return for his um, yeah. investigating the Bidens, that's a quid pro quo. Yes, exactly. And this is this is a theme. This is one of the arguments that Donald Trump has seized on, that there's no quid pro quo. Now, the other issue around that is um, even if there wasn't, the very fact that he's inviting foreign interference in essentially um, an election, if we see Joe Biden as a potential candidate for next year's election, that in itself is problematic. So, it, you know, you just don't need to be trying to bribe somebody as well. But what this is suggesting, both this, these, these text messages and the original phone call, is that without saying it, you know, that was the implication. And that's how things work. That's how it works. And, you know, we've all seen Hollywood f- films where people are warned, you know, if you help me out without saying it, uh, people know what's required of them. And during the phone call, the transcript, the phone phone call, um, uh, at one point, Trump says, I think I'm, I'm quoted directly. He says, you know, you know, uh, can I ask you a favor, though? And that, that word, though, suggests, you know, that there is this kind of um, demands that one is predicated on the other and that these two things are not disconnected. But exactly, I think the text messages are very, very incriminating. And it also suggests that even though the White House is really trying to stonewall Congress about giving information, some people at least are prepared to talk, like Kurt Vockler. And we're going to hear again from the the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who was let go uh, earlier this year. She's also due to testify this week. She could come armed with a lot of information uh, to lawmakers, too, that could be worrying for Donald Trump.
Now, Trump did a remarkable thing last week, and this comes back to what you were saying about him owning this controversy, if you like, when he gave one of those impromptu press conferences in the, in the White House loan that he likes to give. And instead of seeking to untangle himself from the controversy over Ukraine, uh, over a request to Ukraine to investigate a political rival, he kind of raised the stakes and made a public request for China to also investigate the Bidens. Um, that, mm. didn't, that didn't really help his case very much, did it? It didn't. So, as you say, he, number one, admitted that uh, he had asked Ukraine to investigate his rival, and then he suggested China too. Now, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, as we know, he was appointed to a Ukrainian gas company, to the board of that company. Uh, He's estimated to have received about $50,000 a month for that role, while his father was vice president. Uh, He also did work in China. But Donald Trump seems to be suggesting, I think he used a figure a billion and a half or, you know, the, the amount of money that he said the Bidens took out of China. There seems to be no basis for that allegation at the moment. Uh, second of all, I think why it's particularly concerning is that America is in the midst of very tense trade negotiations with China. And, um, you know, President Trump was pushed, didn't really respond to whether he had raised this with President Xi. And uh, I think there's a concern that during these trade negotiations, which are about to get going again, uh, later this week on October the 10th, the White House just announced this morning, actually, that they are going to uh, renew serious trade talks with China this week. Uh, that will President Trump, you know, use this as part of those negotiations? Are we going to see him, him use this as leverage again? That sparked a lot of alarm bells among people, including Republicans like Mitt Romney, who came out and, and criticised the president uh, on this China point. Now, now there's been no evidence, um, Suzanne, of wrongdoing against uh, Hunter Biden. But just to pick up on that point you mentioned there about um, he was receiving a reported $50,000 a month for sitting on an energy board in Ukraine at the time he was the US vice president's son. I mean, people do find that that remarkable and, and not a little bit disturbing. So is, is some of yeah. the mud, if you like, even if he's not establishing uh, evidence of corruption, is some of the mud mm. that Trump is throwing at the Bidens, is it likely to stick? Yeah, it's a very difficult position for Joe Biden. You're absolutely right in that the appointment of Hunter Biden to this board, it was obviously very cynical. Uh, the the head of the, the Ukrainian gas company, Burisma, um, appointed a series of kind of well-known, I think a former Polish president, well, well-known Western figures to the board to kind of clean up its image. Uh, in late, you know, around 2013, 2014. So uh, there are reports that at the time, and we need to remember that Joe Biden as vice president was the main point man with Ukraine during this time. This was a hugely controversial and and very tense time in Ukrainian history. Uh, He was visiting Kiev. He was very actively involved with Kiev. And at the time, some of his aides raised this with Joe Biden and said, you know, is this not a concern that your son will be on this board? So uh, he essentially brushed that aside, said, no, he would keep you know, family and business separate. He was not going to discuss this with his son. Hunter Biden had no experience in the energy sector. Um, so, yes, this is this is pretty unsavory. And I think it suggests a lack of judgment by the Bidens. Also, you know, it is worth mentioning that Hunter Biden, of course, Joe Biden lost his other son, Bo Biden to cancer, tragically, just before the last uh, election here. But Hunter Biden is something of a, a danger spot for Joe Biden. He's got a very public, messy uh, personal life. He struggled with addi- addiction issues throughout his life. He uh, was married for a long time, had went through a very high-profile divorce, and then became romantically involved with the widow of his brother, Bo. And at that time, Joe Biden and his wife put out a statement saying they were fully in support of him. But he's kind of been not really present in a lot on a lot of the campaign 
events in the last few months. There was speculation anyway, was he kind of being kept away uh, from these events? Uh, now, Joe Biden is has got very good relations with his son, wants to keep him out of this. Uh, but I think this was an issue that the Biden campaign probably knew was going to come down the road at some time. Uh, but you're right. I think it is going to stick. What's going to be interesting is whether other Democratic candidates take on Joe Biden about this. Uh, you know, when they're talking about corruption, when they're talking about the swamp, when they're talking about how Washington has to change, are they going to turn around and say to Joe Biden, well, your, you know, your son's position, position is exactly the kind of um, cozy relationship between business and politics that voters do not want anymore. So it remains to be seen whether this will be a vulnerability for Joe Biden, but I, I, I suspect it probably will in the next few months as the campaign continues. And how do you think Biden has been handling the situation so far? What kind of impact has it been having on his campaign? He has said very little. He's been he's been under the radar. He did give comments on the West Coast during the week last week about it, but these kind of got lost because of such a big news agenda here. There, um, he on Sunday though, President or sorry, Vice former Vice President Joe Biden did uh, pen an opinion piece in the Washington Post where he criticised Donald Trump and essentially called him unpresidential and all that. So he was kind of coming out fighting, if you like, in that opinion piece. Generally, we haven't seen much of him on camera. Obviously, uh, he is continuing to do campaign events and the next Democratic debate is coming up on fifteenth on the 15th of October. So it'll be interesting to see whether this issue comes up in that form. So far, you know, it does... I should say that no other candidate has suggested they are going to go with this issue, that they're going to take on Joe Biden about this. For example, even Cory Booker made a comment, I think, in the last 24 hours or so, saying that, you know, if Donald Trump wants to get at Joe Biden, he's to go through Cory Booker first. A real kind of, you know, moment of solidarity from Cory Booker, who previously criticised Joe Biden. Uh, but it remains to be seen as, as, as the months go on, whether this, you know, resonance on the part of the other candidates continues and whether, in fact, they will take on Joe Biden on this issue. And and, and finally, Suzanne, what about the reactions to these developments in the, the Republican Party? Are, are senior figures continuing to stand by Trump to, to a woman and man? Or are, are there any signs of cracks beginning to appear? I think there are signs of cracks in the sense that the last two weekends, we've not here in Washington seen senior Republicans come out and bat for Donald Trump. They have been notable by their absence. So even though nobody has come out and really, really criticised him. At the same time, nobody is going out there and really fighting for him. So I think that is telling its own story. There's also been a few uh, senators who have spoken out. And of course, the Senate really is the more important. That's that's the, the chamber where the impeachment vote, uh, impeachment trial, excuse me, would be held if it goes forward. Um, and out of those 53 Republican senators, most of them have, have stayed quiet. But we have um, we have people like Mitt Romney, he, obviously a Republican Party grandee, he came out strongly on Friday criticising Trump and then Trump lashed out on him uh, on Twitter. Absolutely a, furious response yeah, by Trump, wasn't and I think it? That's, yeah. a mess. That's, a, that's a threat, essentially, by Donald Trump to other Republican senators, I think, to say, you know, if you come out and criticise me, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come out and get you. So I think um, they're, they're trying to keep out of the, the limelight and maybe see how this pans out over the next few weeks and months and see what other skeletons might be in the Trump closet before they really come out on the record on this. Suzanne, thanks for that. We'll watch this space. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.